Welcome to Power Plays, a CoBank Knowledge Exchange podcast series, an audio program where we connect you with top energy and environmental innovators and policymakers who share their insights, experience, and market observations. Hello, I'm Terry Vishwanath, the lead economist for Power, Energy, and Water at CoBank. I'm joined today by co-host and CoBank Managing Director, Tamara Reynolds. Tamara, welcome to the first year anniversary of our podcast program. Hello, Terry. And yes, I'm excited about our one-year anniversary. I don't know about you, but I think we've learned a ton about the world of podcasting and the do's and don'ts over the last 12 months. So for our first podcast in 2022, we wanted to start the year off with a bang by tackling the discussion of possible growth that comes from digitalization and data centers, but not just any data centers. We wanted to narrow the field to crypto mining and the challenges that may occur with delivering electricity to this segment of customers. That's right. The meteoric rise of cryptocurrency is grabbing headlines, but it's also dividing opinions on whether this source of load growth is beneficial or harmful. There have been a number of hearings in Washington recently, in particular the Energy and Commerce House Committee that investigated cleaning up cryptocurrency and the energy impact of blockchains. This is a very nuanced subject. So joining us on today's program is an A-team of guests. Jail Holzman, a journalist for E&E News Outlet, who has covered this topic in some detail. Steve Wright, the former general manager of Chelan PUD and CEO of Bonneville Power. And expert Elaine Johns, CEO of the technical consulting firm InterVision. We begin our discussion with Jail. Jail, as a reporter for e News, you've researched and written about the energy impact of cryptocurrency mining, recently commenting that uh, the EPA is taking steps to rein in the environmental footprint from this activity. Why is this all of a sudden a, a particular point of interest? Well, thank you for having me on. A lot of people talk about how much energy is consumed by cryptocurrency. You know, you've seen headlines comparing it right to that of a small country. It's not helpful to think about it in that way because, you know, many industries consume the same amount of energy as a small country. It's better to think about it from the perspective of of of, of what it will bring to already strained, already vulnerable electric grids to communities that that weren't preparing for a, an added increased load. Um, and that's why I think it's really interesting. You know, we, we really need to be thinking about how the world is going to adapt and change in result in, in result of climate change. And and in this case, in, in many parts of this country of the United States are trying to migrate away from fossil fuels to to cleaner in, in, in some fashion energy sources. The idea of doing that while dealing with an added strain on the grid, that's something that we haven't been thinking about, right? How society expands as it goes net zero. So as a climate journalist, uh, even though I cover (laughs) mining, uh, crypto counts. But let's just kind of go back. Why are we seeing the growth and why particularly in the US? You know, what's driving the activity? Why is it occurring, Jail? Generally speaking, the popularity of cryptocurrency can be traced over decades. So this is not a new phenomenon. The reason why we're seeing a growth and exploration into cryptocurrency in the United States recently, in terms of production, in terms of energy use, this conversation is happening because China recently banned crypto mining. And a lot of that migration 
to come to the United States because power is cheap. So it's been happening for more than a decade, but we've had this big growth occurring because of, of really the ban that, that happened in China. So it's migrating to the U.S. But, you know, where is it coming from in particular? You know, is, is, it, is it one particular state? Is it, is it you know, dispersed? What are you seeing? The parts of the country that are most interested in cryptocurrency at this moment are the places where fuel is cheap. Generally speaking, the states that are attracting investment are the ones that are also passing laws to incentivize crypto. We're seeing it happen in Kentucky. We're seeing it happen in Texas. We're seeing it happen in Wyoming. We're seeing it happen in Washington, New York. We're, we're seeing it happen in, in various parts of the country. But predominantly, we're seeing it happen in places that pass laws to encourage it. At the same time, um, many of the places that are seeing this deployment also have legacy oil and gas plants, coal plants. That, is, that I think is the, the challenge here, is what are we going to do with the, the, the meeting of blockchain, of this technological marvel, and fossil fuels, you know, the, the past that we're trying to get rid of? Yeah, so we've talked a little bit about the growth and, and where it's occurring you know, how much are we talking about? Well, this is actually something I've been I've been trying to figure out in terms of what we're seeing publicly available information. We're seeing growth in parts of this country that have cheap power. That includes rural parts of this country. We're looking a lot now at how parts of this country that used to you know be be engines of you know coal and oil are now becoming hubs for binding cryptocurrency. Yeah, and I guess, you know, with that growth, when we think about that, that recent House testimony, where we, looking at what, what it might mean, you know, half a percent of the world's total electricity supply could be used toward this sort of data use and possibly growing. You know, in terms of regulation, why are they concerned on, on the mining that's occurring in the U.S.? I, I definitely, I think if to use that, you know, to speak from a banking perspective as well, when, when you're a bank and you're evaluating whether or not to give someone a loan, you look at the bankability, the feasibility right. of the thing that they're trying to do. In this case, this is a, a still a very novel practice, a novel currency. And miners are seen in the financial space as not being the safest bet. Because when the price goes down, the value of their mine goes down. So what happens if we sink the future of our power infrastructure on something as fragile as the value of gold? That's essentially what we're in a broader stakes, what some of these deals suggest. When we think about the valuation, the underlying valuation, the wild ride we've had over the past year. And we are going to bank on 30 years of depreciable infrastructure in our communities. This is a challenge. It's a challenge. Thanks so much, Jail. Super helpful. Thank you. Jail provided great context on why Tamara and I decided to feature a podcast on crypto mining. But now let's hear from Steve Wright, who's had very early firsthand experience with serving crypto mining load. Here's that discussion. We're welcoming Steve Wright this morning, who is the former general manager of Chelan Public Utility District and also the former CEO of Bonville Power Administration. Steve, you had a great conversation with House Committee on cryptocurrency and the impact to electricity demand. I thought it was really great, and we're really excited to have you on the program. 
Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. Steve, can you tell us about your experience while at Chelan with growth associated with this type of business? Uh, For those who are really interested, I'd refer you to my testimony. And even that's a short summary of uh, what we went through because our experience lasted for four years. It went from 2014 through 2018. We began to notice in 2014 people showing up with uh, cryptocurrency miners in a variety of different forms. Uh, They came in shipping containers and they would look for the jumper cables to hook up to our power system. They showed up in residential uh, homes. They showed up in vacant commercial businesses, uh, didn't really understand what the implications were for the power system, uh, didn't really care about that, <laughs> to be honest, and uh, mostly just wanted to try to make uh, cryptocurrency and and uh, generate profits from that. Uh, we had a lot of problems associated with that. Uh, uh, this is um, a bunch of folks who understand the electric industry, so you're going to understand uh, overloading circuits and the potential risks that are associated with that, all the way up to fire risk. And we did have uh, at least one fire that we know about that was created as a result of overloaded circuits. And so we were dealing with that. Uh, And then the industry did begin to mature. And uh, so it, it was a mix. We still had some of those early adopters, let's say, But then we began to see bigger companies all the way up to the biggest uh, Bitcoin machine maker in the world, uh, Bitmain out of China, came and uh, wanted to do much bigger locations that uh, potentially could be 100, 200 megawatt type loads. The uh, community had a very robust conversation about do we want this or not, or how do we manage this? When cryptocurrency miners tell us we could be the cryptocurrency capital of the world, is that something we're going to be proud of? At the end of the day, what we did was we have obligation to serve. The only way we had of managing it was to address the cost risk through rate making. The final rate that we adopted had three components to it, uh, which I think um, everyone in the utility industry would recognize. One was manage for stranded asset risk relative to the transmission and distribution system by requiring upfront payment uh, for any uh, T&D needs. And and we did something that was basically a prorata share of what the marginal cost would be for transmission and distribution. Uh, Second, um, given that these loads can come and go, and this is the key element about cryptocurrency that's different from something else. It's the portability of the load that is critical to an electric utility. Uh, we said that the, um, the pricing for generation uh, for the energy contribution should be based on short-term market prices um, because uh, we wouldn't be willing to invest in an asset or even tie up an existing asset given that uh, we don't know how long that load will be there. And finally, Um, We looked at a whole bunch of other risks to the system, everything from like, well, who would pay the the, uh, transmission and distribution operation and maintenance costs to risk to our bond rating and uh, calculated uh, probabilistic approach to what the, um, the cost of that would be and included that in the rate as well. You're talking about a new type of customer. You know, I I think the point that you've made is when we take a look at the rates, very advantageous to, you know, uh, a strong electricity load, um, three cents compared to a national average of 12 cents. But this idea 
that in the age of electrification, we're going to see consumers that are going to become very savvy, data centers in particular, that are going to territory shop. Well, Terry, I think you've hit on the number one key point that makes this unique and different from an electricity standpoint. Because it, you know, the question we were asking ourselves initially is, well, this is just load growth, right? I mean, we're utilities. We deal with load growth all the time. Uh, and yet this was different because of the portability of the load. With cryptocurrency miners and their ability to pick up and move on short notice, uh, you, you ha just have to think differently about the way that you price and set rates. And this was the um, really the key element for us of the new adopted rate is the the fact that um, they could be here today and gone tomorrow means that um, we have to just think about, in effect, short-term pricing for them. Uh, and how do you price for a load on a short-term basis? I think in your testimony, you mentioned that um, some of the elements that made mining unique when, when compared to other loads is really important. Um, maybe you could expand on that a little bit and talk about some of the related challenges or potentially system risk that this type of business um, provides, and, and maybe even talk a little bit to the delivery aspect and how that changes. Well, I, you know, I'd want to be clear that um, portability creates both threat and opportunity, uh, and you know, I want to speak to both. Um, you know, we've spoken some about stranded asset risk uh, with respect to uh, transmission, distribution, generation. There also is the opportunity because if you have underutilized transmission or distribution and you know they can move these miners that they're the ones that we saw were shoebox size those are pretty darn easy to move and you can size them into whatever size you want them to be so if you in fact they would come and they'd say where do you have a spot on your system where i could put 10 megawatts and uh you know if you have a spot on your system that um, has 10 megawatts of capability then you can start generating revenue from something that isn't generating revenue today. The issue that came up at the hearing that I thought was uh, fascinating was the trade-off between the crypto miners that are going to places that are served by coal plants and, and um, the vision that was articulated by some of the witnesses that uh, crypto mining could be used as a way to expand renewable resources. Uh, I would say that um, the likely the biggest difference there is the question as to whether the crypto miners are willing to curtail their load uh, in response to either market prices or the availability of a variable energy resource like a wind or a solar resource and uh, they would be that they would be able to make that economic model work so if i've invested a bunch of money in something and i want to produce a product and then i'm told that i can't um, operate my machines for a period of time, then that means I've got less revenue. You know, it was argued that uh, at the hearing that uh, crypto production could be a good match with solar. And I have to admit that was going through my head was, well, that means that you're not going to produce any crypto at night. So you know, how many hours can you go without crypto production before you say, no, I'm uh, uncle, you know, I, gotta, I can't do this anymore. Exactly. We try to be really efficient with our electricity use. You got back to the point of it's still using a lot of electricity. I think that's an important point. There are at least two issues that came up in the hearing that are relevant here. The first is the question as to uh, coal plants that were planned to be shuttered that 
are apparently reopening due to co-location of cryptocurrency. And there were four examples, uh, New York, Pennsylvania, North Dakota, Montana, that uh, were discussed at the hearing and concern, candidly, from some about how does this fit with our goals for greenhouse gas emissions reduction. But the point that probably got even more attention at the hearing was the efficiency component. Um, I've been an energy efficiency advocate for most of my career. One of the things that I've tried to argue, though, is it's much more efficient to do energy efficiency at the time you're starting rather than to do a retrofit. And so I think that applies in this case to think about what is the pathway that we are going down and, and is it better to find uh, mechanisms to produce cryptocurrency that are the most efficient mechanisms. I do want to add, though, that I, I feel like I looked at, it was like walking past a house with the drapes open and looking in the window uh, from 2014 to 2018 and then walking away for three years and then walking back again. And you know what? The furniture is different inside the house right now. The crypto industry is becoming more sophisticated. Um, it's becoming bigger. Some of them are becoming publicly traded companies. As publicly traded companies, they are having to deal with ESG requirements. Our experience was limited in time, and I think it would be important to understand that what folks are going to see today and what I saw at the hearing was a more mature industry beginning to think more carefully about their implications. But having said that, I would not say it is a fully mature industry yet. Um, for example, I don't think that they have many people who really do understand electric power operations. And I, I walked away from that hearing thinking, boy, this, these are two industries that are likely going to end up needing to find ways to collaborate. And there aren't very many bridges between them right now. Um, it would be a really good thing to find ways to create some bridges between these two industries because they we're talking different languages for the most part. And we know in the electric utility industry, it takes a depth of knowledge about markets and the very different kinds of products that are necessary, the characteristics that are necessary to maintain reliability. And that's going to have to be communicated to the crypto industry. And similarly, their needs and wants are going to have to be communicated back. I think there's a, um, a set of questions around impacts on communities that's bigger than just uh, the electric utility impact. So those of us that are in the consumer-owned utility world, we have an obligation that is bigger than just making sure that the rates are low. So there's this uh, question as well about well, what, what is it? doing for the community. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Steve, we really appreciated the conversation today. Anything else that you want to um, to recap with us or anything that you wanted to finish off with? I hope the message that I've left is that there is um, threat and opportunity in this. Uh, you know, if a cryptocurrency miner can modulate their load and could do it a lot from the perspective of someone who's run a hydro system and you know a hydro system is a variable energy resource too whose output is defined by mother nature i mean 30 40 years we've been seeking loads that could modulate to match the output of a hydropower system if there is a way to be able to do that and especially as we move to more variable energy resources operating on the system um, that is a really unique opportunity that could help solve a whole bunch of problems. 
So you have to start from the perspective of making sure, I think, that your community is protected while looking for the opportunities that could create value. That's really helpful. Thanks so much, Steve, for being with us today. Really appreciate your comments. Thank you. You know, Terry, I really enjoyed Steve's discussion. He made some great points that it really takes a depth of technical knowledge to understand how to maintain and reliably serve different types of load. This understanding needs to be communicated certainly to the crypto industry, but more broadly to the industries that are going to experience this sort of profound growth from digitalization. And in turn, this enterprise needs to communicate back their requirements. And in particular, is this new base load or do we indeed have some level of load flexibility? I agree. You know, Tamara, I know we wanted to have a deeper conversation about the operational risk. That's what, you know, Steve outlined in his discussion. So joining us for the final segment of our podcast is Elaine Johns. She's the CEO of Enervision. Elaine has a terrific way to provide context around Steve's comments and provide our listeners with a great checklist or maybe a how-to guide for serving crypto mining load. Here's our discussion with Elaine. You know, Elaine, it seems like we've got an emergence of a new consumer class in the U.S. They are energy intensive and they are basically rate shopping. They are rate shopping. And this is where we ask the utilities to sit back and say, is this what you really want to do? Do you really want to serve these loads? Um, It is a strategic decision. In Texas, you've got great pricing. Um... And uh, you have a very business-friendly environment. And so that's why they are um, centering in on Texas. Um, They are also centering on different parts of the United States, too. Um, And it's really looking for that flexibility that they want to be able to get low pricing. A lot of these loads are coming in saying, we need, you know, we're going to be here 10 megawatts in two months, you know, six months or before the end of the year. In all practicality, can you really serve this load in six months? Can you really serve this load within the next year? And what do you need to know to be able to serve those loads? Do you have the one single line diagram? Do you have the transmission in place? And if you don't, how long is it going to take to build the infrastructure in all practicality? So um, while they have maybe picked locations and sites and utilities that they think they they want to serve at, I think the utilities need to sit back and say, strategically, can we meet this schedule? And we do want to serve this load if that is where you want. So you want to show that you are cooperating. And so then the question is, is this is what we can reasonably do. And then work from there. They need to understand your situation as well as their, you know, you need to understand their situation. Do you believe that someone's going to grow 50, 70 megawatts in two years, three years? Um, sure. Sure. I mean, they, if their business does well, they, they probably will grow. Um, but the question is, is will they? And to kind of keep that in the back of your mind is you want to make sure that they are legitimate business. That's probably the most important thing, that while they are with you, that they are paying for their share of the cost and any kind of infrastructure that uh, you are required to put in to serve them. I think this idea of know your customer, know your member has never been as important 
as it is today. But all of a sudden we have this new emerging class, very energy dense, whether it is a crypto miner or it is a data center. So how does the lens begin to change in terms of understanding how our consumers, how our members may be changing new membership that's coming into the area? It is a strategic decision if you want to serve these lobes. It's almost like you are you are uh, duplicating your organization internally, that you've got to have a call person, you know, a key accounts person or persons that know that customer and understand when they call, they expect immediate response. The other thing is to understand, I mean, we do have customers right now that can't afford dips in power quality. It's almost as if you need to have another branch of the co-op staff that is totally dedicated to these loads. And it goes all the way into the county. Your billing, if they have a question on the billing, you know, you need to make sure your rate's right. So it sounds like you've kind of, in, in your mind, you've got sort of this checklist that you you think about or you walk through with clients when you talk about what it means to evaluate potential new loads. I would say the legitimacy of the company is probably the first thing that is on my checklist. With these crypto mining loads in particular, there is a scare that they could just up and leave. I think we've heard heard that comment. They can just up and leave. Well, um, after you, you know, having them pay up front for all the planning that you have to do, all the construction, all the procurement of your materials, have them pay and make that contribution and aid of construction um, as almost mandatory. Well, it is, it's mandatory. Um, and if you think about it, if they pay for all this infrastructure for you, for your system and they up and leave, it might be a beneficial upgrade for your system that they just paid for. The other thing about these loads that is different from any other uh, industrial load is they are not a jobs creation group. Um, there's one crypto miner that we've been working with that is actually in an office, a office, one single office in a Google building, okay, that is 20 floors. Now, when it comes to interruptions um, and helping utilities not um, keep their capacity payments low, okay, so when you're in a wholesale power agreement that you have a capacity charge and an energy charge, and that capacity charge has a billing determinant of, say, a coincident peak, uh, maybe 12 CP or 4 CP, like in ERCOT, the 4 CP uh, coincident peak and transmission is a big deal. If they're on your CP, then that means you get charged from ERCOT on the, I mean, you get charged from your transmission service provider for this extra load being on the peak. And so you want them off. So you need the ability to be able to send them signals to get off. I think it's very, very important because let's just use an example. If a 100 megawatt crypto miner is sitting on co-op A's 4CP to ERCOT, their transmission rate just went up and it went up for the next year. 
it didn't just go up for one month. It went up for the next year. And therefore, the co-op is incurring that additional cost. A lot of us have load management programs where, or BYOT programs where we're saying, hey, if you let us, if you let us control your load and we decrease it a little bit, or we're able to save some, you know, some money from our capacity payment, we'll return some dollars to you. This is an extraordinarily large uh, load management load um, to be offering that kind of stuff. But it's things like that that's really important, being able to interrupt and being able to get them off your peak. If they're on your peak, make them pay for it. That's a great point. And Elaine, it kind of goes back to the fact of why you really need to be close to your member. You need to be very aligned. You know, this is a rate-seeking entity, right? So what you're talking about are, are some costs uh, that are involved, and and that has to be on the table up front. Absolutely. That's correct. Elaine, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about this. Um, more to come in this area, and we really appreciate your knowledge and insight on uh, crypto mining loads and what they mean for co-ops. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Tamara, Elaine is so sharp and really grounded. I think she provided terrific framework for evaluating consumer risk from a co-op perspective. Elaine makes this point that the legitimacy of the enterprise and the company tops the list. And these are the same credit issues as a banker that I understand. It's at the heart of what we refer to as know your customer. I hope our audience found this discussion helpful. For our next podcast, we're going to provide a preview of our NRECA conference content and trade show booth that'll feature electric vehicles. We'll be catching up with the CEO of Pierce Pepin Cooperative Services and senior executive sponsor for Charge EV. That's a coalition of more than 50 electric cooperatives that are supporting member EV adoption through a series of programs and initiatives that'll provide greater charging access across the regions. Thanks for joining. Please listen to our next PowerPlace podcast. And join us in Nashville, March 7th through 9th, as we stream our PowerPlace program at NRECA's 2022 Tech Advantage Expo. See you then.